Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome. And uh, for those who are joining us online, I bid you good morning as well, and welcome to you. Um, hey, we're, uh, we're doing a new teaching series. Uh, we started last week, and it's, uh, it's the book of Philippians that we're going to be exploring together. And one of the things I, I challenged us last week to do is consider bringing an actual paper Bible to the Sunday gatherings. Um, and because the reason why is we really want to get into the text so that the text lives in us and we live in the text. Um, so if you brought one this morning, way to go. That's awesome. Uh, if you're still a digital type of person, you want to go digital instead of analog, that's cool too. But if you do want a paper uh, copy of a Bible this morning to explore and to look at, uh, Micah's here and we've got some others at the back there. And you just scooch up your hand and they'd be happy to hand one out uh, to you this morning. Uh, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 1. If you're wondering where Philippians is, maybe you're new to church or new to the Bible. Uh, you can go to the table of contents in the front of your Bible, look in the area that's called the New Testament, and it's about, I don't know, eight books in, and you'll find the book of Philippians. Turn to the page, and voila, you are there. It's that easy. Um, I want to start this morning by showing you some pictures, and I wonder if you can recognize in these pictures who these people are, and it, as it turns out, they all have something in common. So, uh, let's, let's start with the first picture. Do you know who this person is? I'm sure you do. Yes. Martin Luther King Jr., this was his famous, I have a dream speech after the Million Man March on Washington. What if you recognize this next person? That is Winston Churchill, right? He was the one who refused to surrender England to Nazi Germany, even though Nazi Germany is dropping bombs all over his motherland country uh, and whatnot. Uh, his famous speech, we shall never surrender, Winston Churchill. How about this one? It's Mahatma Gandhi. And this was part of his uh, famous salt march protest against British colonialism. Next one. That little guy in the front of the tank. Nobody knows his name, but he's the tank man, right? We don't know his name, but what we do know is that this was 1989. The tanks were rolling into Tiananmen Square. And uh, he stood as a lone protester in front of this. I mean, if we were to back up the camera, we would see this long array of about 19 tanks. And when the tank tried to move, he just moved in front of the tank. He just moved in front of the tank. And eventually, he actually climbed up on top of the tank and talked to people inside of the tank. And then finally, some authorities came in and, and, and dragged him off. Here's this last one. This is Rosa Parks. Refused uh, to be segregated and chose to sit in the whites-only section of the bus. And was one of those key figures who helped spark... A revolution. These people have one common attribute that they shared, and I'm sure you can guess what it is this morning, is courage. They all acted courageously. Uh, in fact, they not only acted courageously, they spoke up courageously. They were among the few who were willing to speak when everybody else chose to remain silent. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I always get inspired by stories of people of courage. I mean, I love to hear these stories and because sometimes it, it, it encourages me to be just a little bit braver in what I do in my everyday life, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in, in small ways. And I wonder this morning if, if some of you maybe need a little bit of courage. Because here's the thing, we, we all experience fear, 
We all experience fear in, in, in various degrees. Um, we fear not fitting in. We fear being found out. We fear Corona or Ebola, right? Or the Macarena, that terrifies me. We fear inflation and taxes and unemployment, sickness and death. We fear failure. Some of us fear success. We fear growing up, living on our own and paying our own bills. Or we fear getting old, living with our kids and paying for their mortgage. We fear sharks and spiders and clowns. Every one of us experiences fear to some degree. And, and I think we can all use a little bit of courage. Now, I, I've discovered that a common fear many believers in Christ share is speaking about Jesus. You know, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes an opportunity happens. It comes, God opens a door or a window or whatever. And, and, and I have this opportunity to speak. It's like, it's laid out before me, but I don't know what happens. It's like the world goes into slow motion. I am like a, a deer looking at the approaching freight train's headlights, right? My hands get clammy. My spit gets pacey. There's like this giant peanut butter hairball that forms in the back of my throat. And, and I have the most amazing, life-changing news on the tip of my tongue. But I can't seem to get it out. Because you know what? I'm, I'm afraid. And I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. Or, or I'm going to say it in the wrong way. Or, or I'm afraid that if I speak, it's going to somehow affect and disrupt my relationship with this person. right? And all these thoughts and all these fears are swirling around in my head. And I just can't seem to get it out. And I wonder this morning if I'm not alone. I wonder this morning if maybe you felt that way too. Have you? Well, the good news is none of us are alone. And as it turns out, people have actually been feeling this way for thousands of years for different reasons. There were other people who needed help speaking Jesus courageously. And so that's our topic this morning as we look into the text. We're going to be talking about speaking Jesus courageously. So I'm going to start reading this morning at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. And this will all unfold as we walk through the text together. Here's what, Paul, what it says, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, you might remember that Philippians was written by a man whose name was Paul the Apostle, uh, and he's writing to a church that is, in, of course, in the city of Philippi. And, and the first thing that you pick up in this text, in, in, in verse 12, is just this. Something has happened to Paul. The question is, what's he talking about? Well, let me, let me just recap a bit of the backstory. Paul's under house arrest in Rome. He's chained to the floor, okay? Outside the door of this house are, are Roman soldiers who are guarding him. Uh, Paul cannot leave. Uh, but visitors can come and visit Paul, you know, to bring him supplies and, and spend some time with him. But basically, he's there, and he's awaiting trial. Now, Paul says this, an interesting thing in the text. He says, in the text, my imprisonment is for Christ. And later on in verse 16, we'll discover, he, he, he says also that I've been put here for the defense of the gospel. So the truth is that Paul was actually put in prison in this time for speaking Jesus courageously. In fact, this is, this is how Paul got to Rome. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a long story. And, and uh, there's, it, actually, if you read the book of Acts, you start at chapter 21, and you find your way all the way to the end of chapter 28. That's the whole story of how Paul found his way to Rome. It covers a large portion of the book of Acts. Um, but basically, the story began when Paul was visiting Jerusalem a few years prior. 
And there were many people in Jerusalem who opposed Paul. They, they opposed this new movement, this new Christian movement that was beginning to emerge, right? And so because people felt threatened by him, the religious establishment felt threatened by him, they, they presented some charges about Paul that weren't exactly true. They were false accusations. But they were so heinous, they were so um, horrible, and they would have been in that culture, that people started to get stirred up. A mob formed, people, um, uh, tempers flared, and then eventually Paul was dragged into the street by his own people, and they started to beat on him. So because of this, the local Roman authorities decided that they were going to intervene. The, the tribune is what his name was. Uh, and they actually came into the crowd, and they literally had to pick Paul up and carry him out. Like, this is how furious the mob was. Carry him out, surrounded by soldiers, and they dragged him towards the barracks. Now, when they got to the steps of the barracks, Paul said, Hey, do you think that I could just turn around and speak to the crowd one more time? For some reason, I don't know why, they said, sure. And then Paul, what did Paul do? He began again to speak Jesus courageously to the crowd. Now, this did not work out very well at all. The crowd even got a little bit more crazy, right? And so what they did was they took Paul and they locked him up in the local barracks. But then they discovered that there was a, there was a plot forming to assassinate Paul. And the soldiers realized and the tribune realized we can't keep Paul here in Jerusalem. He is going to get torn apart. So instead, they shipped him off to Caesarea. Caesarea was like the capital city of the region. That's where the governor's palace was. And so they shipped Paul off to Caesarea. And he comes before the governor whose name was Felix. And Felix asked Paul, what's the issue? And what did Paul do? He spoke Jesus courageously. <laughs> but of course, Felix was, didn't want to just let Paul go and whatnot. So Felix decided to keep Paul in prison there for two entire years. And he was actually kind of hoping that he could get a bribe out of Paul. But uh, Paul wasn't willing to pay the bribe. So all that time, Paul stayed there in Caesarea. He spoke Jesus courageously to the governor, to everyone who was there. And then two years went by. Two years locked in jail in Caesarea. And then a new governor came in. His name was Festus. And of course, Festus wanted to hear the case of Paul. So he brought Paul before him. And he asked Paul, what's the deal? And what did Paul do? Well, he spoke Jesus courageously to Festus. But Festus decided, you know, I, I, I want to kind of curry favor. I want to gain favor. I want to win points with the people in Jerusalem. So Festus had it in mind. He was going to send Paul back to Jerusalem to get tried again. Well, we all know that if Paul went back to Jerusalem, that would have been the end of them. They would have just torn Paul apart. It wouldn't have been a fair trial. And it would be like throwing him to the lions. So Paul did what he could only do to save himself and as well to get to Rome. Paul appealed to Caesar, which was Paul's right because Paul was a Roman citizen. And he had the right to say, I appeal to Caesar, which means I want to go to Rome and I want to stand in Caesar's court and I want to stand before Caesar or some of his magistrates and I want my trial to take place in Rome rather than here in this kind of kangaroo court uh, that's before us. So uh, Festus agreed, and of course Festus couldn't not agree, but there was one problem. In order to send Paul to Rome to be tried, Festus had to have a good reason for Paul to be tried. And Festus couldn't come up with a good reason for Paul to be tried because these are trumped up charges. So he didn't know what to do. Well, King Agrippa showed up with his wife Bernice. And Festus said to them, he said, well, thanks for visiting, but I, I got this guy named Paul and I don't know what to do with him. I wondered if you'd be willing to listen to his case because I want to send him off to Rome. So they came in, they listened to Paul's case, and of course, what did Paul do to King Agrippa and Bernice? He spoke Jesus courageously. 
<laughs> and then, so what they decided is they, 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 they got together afterwards and they said, hey, listen, um, we've heard Paul's case, but what we've discovered is there's no reason to accuse him. He could have gotten away. He could have been let go if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. But now he's appealed to Caesar, and so to Caesar he must go. And so Paul was sent off to Rome, and, and it was quite an adventure for him to get there. And it's a long journey of how he got there. There's shipwrecks and trials and difficulties all along the way. But all along the way, as Paul is going from Caesarea to Rome, what is he doing? He's speaking Jesus courageously all the way. Now, the most fascinating thing about Paul's journey to Rome is that it was actually no accident. In fact, Rome is precisely where Jesus wanted Paul to be. Paul wasn't in prison for the emperor. Paul was in prison for Christ for the king of all kings. There's this interesting little part in the story of Paul. If, if, you, if you go back to when Paul was first in the barracks in Jerusalem, you remember that? When Paul first got in the barracks in Jerusalem, he had a visitation from Jesus himself. And we actually read about it in Acts chapter 23 and verse 11. And here's what it says. It says, The following night, so Paul's just been imprisoned, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so what this means is, is in this entire convoluted, mixed up scenario, somehow Jesus in his sovereignty is working behind the scenes. He's pulling the strings in order to send Paul to Rome. And of course, Paul's willing to follow. I mean, it's going to mean suffering. It might mean difficult times, but Jesus is sending me to Rome. I guess I'm going to Rome. And so when Paul says, I'm in prison for Christ, there's a double meaning here about what he's trying to say to the church in Philippi. And here's the thing, and we read this in the text, that even though Paul was in prison, he saw this as a win. Because here's the thing, God, God can take a really bad situation and he can use it for his good. God has this way of, of being able to redeem our sufferings, to take difficult situations that you may find yourself in. And God can take that and use it in such a way that it causes good. So the positive outcome that Paul talks about here is, is that the reality is, even though I'm locked up in prison, the gospel of Jesus Christ is advancing. The gospel is advancing, in fact, so strongly that it was impacting the imperial guard. Now, who were the imperial guard? Well, the imperial guard were, were who were called the praetorium. Uh, they were basically Caesar's personal army. They were his special ops security force. There were thousands of them in Rome. And the thing about them is these soldiers would have stood outside Paul's door every single day for four-hour shifts. They were a captive audience, even though Paul was a captive prisoner. Now, you can imagine, if they were standing there for four hours a day, hanging out with Paul, what do you think Paul was doing? He was speaking Jesus courageously. And of course, they had an opportunity to hear, overhear the visitors as they're coming to visit Paul, had an opportunity to watch Paul's way of life. And more than anything, they had an opportunity to see Paul's demeanor, his posture of his heart, while he's there in prison. And after they probably would have gone back and told their families about what they'd seen and heard, they would say, you know what, this is the strangest thing. I mean, I was locked up with this guy named Paul all day long. He's happy. He's probably going to get executed, right? But he's talking about this guy named Jesus and how this guy named Jesus, this God of his that he worships, had actually brought him all the way to Rome. And he tells this amazing story. You wouldn't believe what Paul had told me. 
So word would likely have begun to spread beyond that. And because of that, the gospel was beginning to advance throughout the praetorium and also throughout the entire Roman community. But it didn't stop there. Let's keep reading. Paul says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So others, because of this, started to speak Jesus courageously, right? And where did this boldness come from? Well, it came from Paul's chains and God's activity, right? Because they'd heard what the Lord was doing, and, and they turned their eyes towards the Lord as well. And they discovered, you know what, here's the thing, is you can lock Paul up, but you can't lock up the gospel. So essentially what, what's happening is Paul's boldness is beginning to inspire their boldness. Now, here's the thing. I mean, if you know the historical context of what's happening here, the church in that day had every reason to be afraid, especially when you consider who the Roman emperor was at that time. In that moment in time, the Roman emperor was none other than Nero. And Nero was this insane, insecure tyrant. I mean, he was a real piece of work. Uh, he came into power when he was just 16 years old. He had his wife executed. He had his mother executed. He had all opposition to him in the government executed. He basically ruled and dominated just through sheer terror. Nobody would stand up to Nero. And Nero would eventually become the persecutor of the church. The first Gentile persecution of the church. I mean, the Jews were already persecuting the church at this time. But the first Gentile official persecutor of the church was this man named Nero. In AD 64, a great fire broke out in the city of Rome. And you might know your history here. And this fire lasted nine days. It basically wiped out about a quarter of the city of Rome. Some speculate that Nero probably started the fire himself because he wanted to build a new palace for himself. But Nero needed a scapegoat. And so Nero's scapegoat were none other than the Christian church. He blamed Christians for this fire. And as a result of that, he got permission from people to be able to start persecuting the church. I mean, there was, he was a horrible persecutor of the church. There's, there's one early writer, one ancient writer reported that on his worst days, Nero would crucify Christians, dip them in oil, and light them on fire. So that at night, he had torches to light up his garden parties and his races. This was the kind of guy that Nero was, and he was the emperor at that time. Paul is writing Philippians only a few years before the burning of Rome. Just a few years before this. Like maybe two. Now, Rome's attitude toward Christians didn't happen overnight. There was, it was an increasing tension that was building over time. And in the beginning, Rome was actually tolerant of Christianity because Rome just assumed that Christianity was just another sect of Judaism. And Judaism was a licensed religion in Rome. You see, all non-Roman religions in Rome had to be approved by the government. Otherwise, they could not exist. And so long as they didn't interfere with the peace, and so long as they didn't um, endorse bad ethics in society, they allowed these other religions to exist. But then what happened? The Jews started persecuting Christians. And the Christian movement started to grow. And so the differences between Judaism and Christianity became much more obvious. And as a result of that, the Roman authorities started to take notice. They said, well, wait a minute. This isn't necessarily Judaism here. This is, this is something else. And then on top of that, there was also a growing dislike of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. Because Christians had strange practices. Communion and love feasts. That's strange. You know, and, and Christians didn't jump in and do the same things ethically that other Roman people normally would do. And worst of all, Christians didn't worship false gods. 
which is really, really difficult in an empire filled with idols. You couldn't go into a place of business. You couldn't go into somebody's house without bumping into idols. And it was customary that you would worship idols. But Christians believed in one God. And of course, they're not going to bow down to other idols. So this created tension. But the biggest tension of all was with the imperial cult in that day and age. See, the Romans had begun to treat their dead emperors as gods. And the Romans had begun to worship the dead emperors. And some of the living emperors were kind of latching onto this and starting to treat themselves in kind of a deity type of thing. They, they, they gave themselves godlike status. There's actually one inscription that was there uh, that you can find in history about Nero. Nero called himself the Lord of the whole world. And Lord, like not small L, capital L, Lord of the whole world. So I want you to think about this, okay? I want you to imagine back then. Imagine this world. You're the emperor. And there's this religion that's out there in the empire. And it's growing. And it's not a licensed religion. It's an unlicensed religion. And this religion is claiming that their leader is the resurrected son of God. And that this leader is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And this leader's kingdom has come. And this kingdom will come again. And it will wipe out all other kingdoms. And it will bring justice to the earth. If you are an insane, insecure, mad Roman emperor, what do you think you would do? And so this is the tension. This is the tension that's, that the Philippian, in which Philippians was written. And it didn't just happen in Rome. I mean, this was happening out in Philippi. It was happening all over the Roman Empire. Christians were feeling this tension and this growing fear. And I think it would have been pretty easy at that time to just say, hey, you know what, let's just lay low. <laughs> let's not speak up. Let's not rock the boat. Let's just duck undercover. And yet, in spite of this growing pressure to fit in and to be silent, what was the church doing here? They were speaking Jesus courageously. But they weren't the only ones. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. So, Paul says this, he says, you know, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So as it turns out, not everybody's in Paul's fan clubs. Some people love Paul. Some people dislike him and envied him. And we don't know from the text exactly who these rivals were who, uh, for Paul. What, what we do know, though, is that they were jealous of Paul. And you have to think about it this way. See, before Paul got to Rome, there were no apostles in Rome up to that point. People had gone to Rome and they proclaimed the gospel and people began following after Jesus or followers of Jesus had moved to Rome. But up to that time, there was no real strong apostolic leader. And then suddenly Paul shows up. I mean, this is Paul, of all people, right? And he's in prison for Jesus, right? And so people are getting starry-eyed, and they're like, this is Paul, this is amazing, you know? And, and he's inspiring people, and, and people are getting revved up and excited. Well, Paul was a threat to insecure people who wanted power and who wanted popularity. And they likely thought that by speaking Jesus courageously, they might stir up more trouble in Rome, right? Because there was already trouble in Rome. So why not stir the pot a little bit more? And, and so people's dislike of Christ's followers would maybe get worse. You know, they might blame Paul and maybe Rome would ultimately do the dirty work for them and take care of Paul. Which is mind-blowing when you think about it, isn't it? That, that people would be so concerned 
about their personal power and their personal platform, that they would stir up the pot just to try and get rid of Paul. I mean, in our day and age, that would never happen, right? What kind of Christ follower would ever do that? We're far more wiser, far more sophisticated in our modern day to ever allow something like that to happen. You know, I think if I was Paul, I mean, what would I be feeling? I would be, I would be mad. I mean, I'd be, I'd be hurt. I'd feel betrayed. I'd be like, how can people do that? I'd, I'd maybe even secretly, something inside of me, maybe want to seek revenge to these people and what they're trying to do to me because I heard that they're doing it for all the wrong reasons rather than the right reasons. Let's look at Paul's response, though. Here's what he says in verse 18. He's what then? In other words, what do we do about this problem? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. What's Paul's response? It's joy. It's joy. I mean, and the theme, joy, I mean, we already talked about this last week, but it's just going to keep popping up in Philippians. And I think it should continue to surprise us, right? When we consider that Paul's chained to the floor, he's locked in a house, he's half starving, he's a world away from the people he care about, he's facing potential death, right? And yet here he is, he's in prison and he's rejoicing. And he's experiencing joy. But now the reason that he's joy- rejoicing is that, that people are speaking Jesus courageously. It doesn't matter why they're doing it. All that matters is that they're doing it. And you can probably imagine, if you know Paul's story, there's a reason why he's so happy. I mean, this was Paul's life's work. Jesus had rescued Paul from his former legalistic religious way of life, right? Uh, This is what Jesus had called him to do. Jesus had called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, okay? So the non-Jewish people. And Paul, he'd written before, I mean, even in his letter to the Romans before, that he'd written before this, he says, you know, it's always been my desire to get to Rome. I want to bring the gospel to Rome. Why? Well, partly because it's it's the center hub to go on into Spain, but also because Rome is where the the authority and the power of all uh, the world at that time was. So now here, uh, Paul is chained up, but the gospel is unchained, and it's advancing throughout Rome. And so for Paul, his prison became a cathedral, a place of praise, a house of worship, not a house of shame, and not a house of, of chains. Well, what do we learn about this? I mean, what do we learn then this morning about, about speaking Jesus courageously? I want to talk about three things that, I, that as I've read through the text that I, I found really interesting. First of all, speaking Jesus courageously could lead to suffering. You know, there's a general belief in our culture that all religions are essentially the same. All religions are essentially true or valid. And so anybody who, who gets up and, and says, I, I have an absolute truth claim. I believe this to be true and only this to be true. You're often deemed as bigoted or arrogant or intolerant. But... This, this, this belief system, which we, we would call religious pluralism in our, in our day and age, it, it came about for a good reason. I mean, originally when it came about, it came about because religions were fighting. And we don't want religions to be fighting or faith systems to be fighting. So we want people to get along. And that's a good reason, right? But ultimately it evolved to being this belief system that essentially says all religions are basically the same. The problem with the system is it's actually not sustainable, and it's not logically consistent. I mean, I mean, if you really look at the fundamental truth claims of all the different world religions, you'll realize when you look closely at them that they're not the same. As a matter of fact, many times they're contradictory to each other. So to be able to say, 
They're all the same, and yet they're contradictory. Again, that's logically inconsistent. It's not sustainable. But in our culture, we kind of just assume that this is true. All religions are essentially the same. All of them are equally valid and true. And if you take a religion 101 course, this is what you're going to come out with as the basic fact. All religions are essentially the same. So people will think you're arrogant or narrow-minded if you speak Jesus courageously. You probably won't get beaten or thrown into jail. But some people might not respect you. They might not take you seriously. You might get left out. You might not get invited to the party, right? Pastors seldom get invited to parties, let me just say. Oh, my heart. Okay. Um, even though I, I can be a lot of fun at a party, you know. <laughs> I can find the lampshade. Okay. It might, not, it might cost you friendships. It might cost you a promotion. Some people might even talk about you behind your back. If you take Jesus and the gospel seriously, and you speak Jesus courageously. Now, there are different kinds of suffering. There are different degrees of suffering. And nobody likes suffering, right? None of us want to be experience suffering. None of us want to face opposition. We like to avoid suffering. As a matter of fact, our culture, the culture we live in, doesn't handle suffering very well because we do everything we can to hide suffering or to get rid of suffering. We medicate it. We, we put it off until later. So our first instinct as a culture, if we face any form of suffering or any form of opposition, is simply to run away, to get away from it as fast as we can. But here's the thing. Nowhere does it say in Scripture that we are to speak Jesus courageously only if we know there will be a positive outcome or that people will accept it or that we'll become popular. Because at the end of the day, the acceptance of speaking Jesus courageously isn't even our job. It's God's job. We do not have the power to transform and change a human heart. Only God does. Only the power of the Holy Spirit working through us can actually change and transform human hearts. And Paul knew that there would be consequences to speaking Jesus courageously. He knew that would happen. He risked suffering because he knew that Jesus had sent him. And it could help people experience the life-transforming power of the gospel. So because he knew all of this, he says, you know, it's worth it. It's worth the cost. I'm willing to go to Rome and make this happen. And as it turns out, that's exactly what Jesus did. Paul was simply following in the way of Jesus, his Lord and his Messiah. Because what did Jesus do? Jesus left the Father's side. He came and dwelt among us, fully embracing the frailties and the limitations of what it means to be a human being. I mean, he was crushed through the birth canal. He screamed for his mother's milk. He scraped his knees. He felt hunger and thirst. He wept at his friend's funeral. And in the end, he was mocked, he was beaten, and he was nailed to a cross. But Jesus went through this suffering because he understood that there's a greater purpose, that there is a higher purpose. So I want you to consider this this morning. Have you ever considered that facing opposition or experiencing opposition, that rather than running from it, this may precisely be where Jesus wants you to be? Have you considered that? Well, here's the second thing we learn. Speaking Jesus courageously could inspire others to speak. Because that's what Paul did. Paul inspired other people to uh, speak Jesus courageously. You know, when people see the Lord at work through you, it could inspire them to do the same thing. I mean, think back to all the people we explored at the beginning of today's talk. Rosa Parks, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Winston Churchill, the tank man. Each of them displayed courage. Each of them inspired courage. Courage encourages courage. 
And it was the philosopher and statesman Edmund Burke from the 1700s who made this well-known statement. We're very familiar with it. He says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Listen, doing nothing is easy. But doing something starts revolutions. And here's what I've discovered. When people stop speaking Jesus courageously, more people stop speaking Jesus courageously. And churches die when people stop speaking Jesus courageously. But when people start speaking Jesus courageously, more people start speaking Jesus courageously. And churches thrive when people start speaking Jesus courageously. So you may just be that spark. You may just be that person who is going to inspire other people to speak out with love about the good news of Jesus. And here's the final thing we learn. Speaking Jesus courageously could change lives for eternity. You know, we read in the text, the, these, the text we read today, is, is that Paul says the gospel is advancing. The, the imperial guard is hearing the good news. The church was beginning to speak Jesus courageously. But the question is, did it have any effect? I mean, did anybody even respond to it? Did anybody embrace Jesus? Did anyone become followers? Well, we find a little clue in Paul's letter in the very final chapter. As Paul's just kind of giving his closing remarks to the church in Philippi. I want to read these final verses. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 21. Here's what Paul's saying to the church. He says, hey, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. It's very subtle. And Paul is winking at us through the text. But what he's saying is this. You know, saints was a term that Paul used to describe the church, followers of Jesus. Who did Paul include among the saints? Who did Paul include among the church? He says, those of Caesar's household. Now, the word household in the Greek is oikos. Now, it's talking about, not talking about the family members of Caesar. The oikos in Greek culture would have been all the extended servants and workers who were part of Caesar's household. So his slaves, his servants, his soldiers, the gardeners, the cooks, the housekeepers. A large number of them had become followers of Jesus because people were speaking Jesus courageously. And so the gospel was changing lives in the bedrooms and in the bathrooms and in the hallways of Caesar's palace. And who knows what impact those people would eventually have had on the Roman Empire. Because it's interesting, if, if you study the history of the expansion of Christianity, up to this time, there were only several thousand believers in Christ in, in the entire nation of Rome. But by 350, 56% of the Roman Empire had become followers of Jesus. So who knows the spillover effect that it happened just as a result of those members of Caesar's household. I think it's important that we never underestimate the influence of housekeepers and nannies with the gospel of Jesus Christ when they just speak Jesus courageously. You know, there's the actor Stephen Baldwin. Um, you may remember him. Um, he's the brother of Alec Baldwin. He was in a number of different movies. He's an actor. He's a producer. He's a writer. He came to Jesus through his children's nanny. I don't know if you know that. Um, his nanny's name was Augusta. She was from Brazil. And she would sing songs to his children in Portuguese. But of course, Stephen didn't speak Portuguese. His wife, though, was from Brazil as well, Kenya. And she spoke Portuguese. So she would overhear these songs that her nanny was singing 
to her children. And so one day she said to Stephen, do you know what, he's, what she's singing to our children? Like the whole time that she's singing, all that she talks about is Jesus. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So finally Stephen and Kenya confronted Augusta and they said, why, can you tell us why is it that you speak about Jesus all the time and you're singing? I mean, isn't there something else you could be <laughs> singing about? And she said to them, she, she kind of laughed and, and caught them off guard, actually startled them. And she says, you know, it's really funny that you think I'm here just to clean your house. I'm actually here for a very different reason. She says, you see, before I came to work for you, my pastor and my church gathered together to pray about this job that I was taking with the Baldwins. And as we gathered together, there was a prophecy. And they prophesied that if I came and I worked for you, you both would become followers of Jesus. And one day you would both be in the ministry. So I'm not just here to clean your house. I'm here to speak to you about Jesus. Now, of course, when Stephen heard this, I mean, he was, he was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> he, said, he thought it was ridiculous. And he was in the height of his career at the time. He's making lots of money, right? He's producing movies and whatnot. So he just like, whatever. He went back to work. But while Stephen was at work, Kenya was spending time with Augusta. And Augusta was speaking the gospel courageously to Kenya. And Kenya gave her life over to follow Jesus Christ. And she was baptized. And so when Stephen came home, she told him what had happened. She said, Stephen, would you please support me in this? Would you support me in, in what I'm choosing to do? And Stephen says, okay, fine. Stephen had a Catholic background. So he said, okay, that's fine. You can, you can follow Jesus. That's fine. Well, he started observing Kenya's life. He noticed that she would get up early in the morning on her knees, praying and reading her Bible. He started seeing a, a radical change in her disposition and in her character. And he started to take notice. Now, 9-11 happened. And this rocked Stephen's world. He couldn't understand how people could do this. And as a result of that, he, he took all of that teaching that he had heard from his wife and, and from Augusta. And it had sown seeds in his heart. And he said, well, maybe there's more to this Christianity thing than I've ever considered before. And so he began to study the scriptures and he began to read. And then he eventually just surrendered and committed his life to following Jesus. And now today he's being used by God in ministry. And so is his wife, which is just really crazy when you think about it. How did this all happen? His household nanny was speaking Jesus courageously. A member of his household, his oikos. Now, you might be here today, and you might say, you know, you have doubts about whether or not God can use you, right? But the truth is, is that God loves to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. This is, this is the reality of Scripture from cover to cover. If you start at the beginning, you work your way towards the end. God delights to do this. I, I love what Pastor Rick Warren writes in The Purpose Driven Life. Here's what he says. He says, Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Leo was unattractive. Joseph was abused. Moses stuttered. Gideon was poor. Samson was codependent. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair with all kinds of family problems. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was reluctant. Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist was eccentric, to say the least. Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health, and Timothy was timid. That is quite a variety of misfits, but God's used each of them in his service. And he will use you too if you stop making excuses. And this brings to mind what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth when they were chasing after super pastors and platform builders. This is what he said to them. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here's the thing. God delights to use average Joes and everyday Josephines to turn the world upside down. And God delights to use you and I. And so Crosspoint, may we speak Jesus courageously. And may we do it winsomely and lovingly. May we do it through relationship. May we do it trusting in God's power working through us. And may the gospel advance. And may we inspire others to be courageous. And may, we, may our lives and other people's lives be transformed for eternity, no matter what the cost. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.